the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. We're discussing the decision of the Federal Reserve on interest rates and the long-awaited start of the Rugby World Cup. There's no escaping either of these big events this week. To discuss the Fed, I'm joined in studio by John McManus, Irish Times business editor, and Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times business team. Later we'll talk rugby with Laura Slattery and Dominic Coyle. John McManus, the Fed is to discuss on Thursday whether to increase interest rates for the first time in nine years. What do you think? Well, I think it's the uh, most discussed interest rate rise in history. If it is a rise. If it will be a rise, yeah. And and as you say, it it comes after nine years of of zero rates. And and as we sit here, it's it's not yet clear whether they they will. It, It comes after a uh, several years of indicating that the Americans expected the um, their economy was starting to recover and they expected the interest rate cycle to turn and um, the uh, up until the conflagration over China during the um, summer uh, and the autumn they had sort of got it into everybody's heads that it was going to happen around now and then uh, China came along and a lot of people got windy and um, there's a great de- great deal of debate as to whether the, the this is the time to to put it up, and it's sort of a trade off really between what um, you could argue the American economy needs and what's right for the American economy right now, uh, and the the global picture and the implications of an American rate rise for the global economy. I mean, putting it simply, America America is approaching full employment. Um, that's the main trigger for the Fed, and so all else being equal, this is when they should start putting up rates, but they can't ignore the wider picture. And the situation is that the Fed has for many months been saying that it is going to look at increasing rates this year. And the meeting on Thursday of this week is the uh, third last meeting this year. So if it's not done this week, it's going to have to be done before the end of the year if the Fed is to stick by the guidance it has given to the market and maintain its own credibility, if you like, on that front, notwithstanding ructions in China. Yeah, I, I'd agree, but at the same time, I suppose they they can, of course. Uh, you know, common sense must prevail. I mean, let's not forget the ECB uh, put up put up uh, rates just as the uh, credit crisis in the middle of the credit crunch. Who could forget? They, because they said they were going to do it, even yes. though they shouldn't have at that stage. So I don't think the Fed is quite so hidebound. Uh, I, I think it's more just. Um, but I agree with you in that they they will they if they don't they'll have to send some sort of a signal to show that they know what they're doing. So if they don't put them up this week, the expectation is they will give a, a some sort of a a roadmap for when they will put them up. Owen Burke Kennedy, uh, interest rate rises or the interest rate cycle. It seems to me uh, at this point is a bit like uh, waiting for a bus. You could be waiting for a bus for a very long time and none arrives, and then all of a sudden three or four arrives. And so the question around an interest rate increase at this point by the Federal Reserve as to is as to whether a modest increase right now would lead to further increases down the line pretty soon. I suppose the, the Fed has signaled for a long time that once it starts, there will be a sort of gradual uh, era of small, modest, you know, quarter percent interest rate rises, you know, for the foreseeable future. So uh, we can expect interest rates to start rising. Uh, the sort of suspicion is that the Bank of England will follow suit. 
So yeah, we can we can I suppose rightfully expect a new uh, era of kind of interest rate rises. I mean, John and I were talking earlier on, and we were considering the fact that many in the financial sector in the U.S. and in Britain have probably had their whole careers without one interest rate rise, which is a, an amazing phenomenon. Many in financial journalism, indeed. <laughs> anyway, in terms of uh, the possible effect uh, for countries like Ireland and the, and the wider global economy, traditional economic theory tells us that when you put up interest rates, there's going to be a, an appreciation in the host currency. So the dollar uh, would likely appreciate against the euro. Uh, this would have a knock-on effect on our making our imports uh, more attractive, potentially making us a more attractive destination for US FDI. Now, the only splinter in this argument, it's a pretty big splinter, is that nobody is predicting the dollar to appreciate against the euro in the medium or, or by next year. Actually, a poll of economists by Reuters recently found that most were expecting the euro to rise to around 120 uh, US cent, uh, which is in sharp contrast to the beginning of the year when people were predicting parity almost imminently. So that would have the opposite effect of making our exports less attractive, uh, making us relatively less attractive as uh, an FDI uh, destination. But um, another aspect then would be a, a small rise in um, US rates will lift bond prices across the world. That's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of uh, you know raising bank rates, raising loans to firms, raising mortgages, uh, raising car loans, all these sort of things. But we should also put this in perspective. I mean, a few years ago, I don't think the people in the MTA or uh, MTMA, I should say, are going to be spooked by a quarter percent rise. I mean, a few years ago, we were paying 15% on 10-year notes. So a quarter percent is pretty modest in the context of where we've been. And it's also the case that uh, interest rates in the Eurozone remain at rock bottom, are going to continue at rock, rock bottom for a considerable period to come. And all of this comes against the backdrop of Mario Draghi's promise to prolong quantitative easing beyond September next year, if required. Absolutely. And I mean, we should reflect on the fact that interest rates will start to rise in Britain and America as a reflection of the central bank's view that the economy has, the war is over, so to speak. The economy has kind of recovered, is now on a new on a pathway. The worst of the recession is well and truly gone. America is at full employment. Uh, a report today even suggests that uh, wage demands in Britain is at a kind of multi-year high. So they, the central banks are viewing the economies as, as, as recovered. Uh, the initial part of our recovery here was based completely on a pickup in America and Britain. So these things are positive for, from an Irish perspective. It's absolutely the case. I mean, it's, it's, lo it's a long-standing accepted convention in the assessment of the Irish economy right now that it was the growth in America and the, and the UK, which were much faster to come out of recession, that really kept the Irish economy on its feet to an extent when conditions were at their worst. John McManus. But uh, what, what Owen was just saying there about the kind of, you know, on the one hand and on the other type of the uh, implications. Well, this is an economic discussion, it John. Is, it is, but it, it shows you, it shows you the, the dilemma the Fed is in. You know, that classical economics would, would, would tell you your, your unemployment is, is low, um, put up rates now or you're just going to feed another credit, another credit bubble. But imagine you're doing that and you don't know what impact that's going to have on your currency because nobody really does. And then you've got all this noise in your ear from a, a, a stock market that uh, nobody understands how it works anymore. And as we were saying, it's you know, populated by a lot of people who have known nothing but zero interest rates for most of the, for the, a good part of their working lives. 
you, you get a sense of how it's uh, it, there's a you know there probably is no um, there is no clarity as to what's the right thing to do but I suppose you can put up you could put up interest rates and see what happens then you can always put them back down again can't you well that's what they do um, what of the the Chinese dimension and concerns at the level of the IMF and the World Bank that a rate hike right now albeit a very modest one could uh, spook people in, in in emerging markets well again you know how can you how can you make a decision when you don't really know what's going on in China I mean the the Chinese are not really open about what's going on with their economy and every week you're well, they're going around after journalists who are admitted to um, uh, trying to uh, manipulate the markets uh, all on their own yeah that's a very dangerous development mm. but the uh, um, you know so, so if you were the Fed again you probably have your own source of information on China but uh, trying to, to predict the true consequences of your interest rate rise on the Chinese economy it's, it's difficult isn't it I mean, I think at the end of the day, they they, they probably have to do their, their mandate is to do what is right for America and American citizens, not necessarily Wall Street. The two are interconnected. Um, their 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 sort of basis for everything is is is, is employment. They were saying last week um, that they would be looking at the jobless figures out last Friday, which were broadly positive. So, on that basis, it all points towards a rate rises increase. And there's the question of credibility as well that you were talking about. Um, uh, and you know, you, you, the the unforeseen consequences you'll just have, they'll just have to deal with. And it, it's a long way up as well because uh, interest rates have been so low for so long. The return of normality, such as it is, uh, could be quite a while away. But interest rates would have to increase to a substantial degree to return to normal levels. I think so. I mean, you're going to you're going to see some sort of a overreaction from the markets, and you've seen the, the sort of several even. Uh, even talk of interest rates seems to spook them. But, you know, that's froth. That's got to die away. Yeah, that's true. But uh, the other side of that coin is that the Fed has telegraphed this weight rise for some time now. And the expectation is if it doesn't actually happen, the markets could be equally spooked as they'll interpret it as the Fed being unnervy uh, and jumpy about what's happening in China. And as John said earlier, it's anyone's guess whether the Chinese problem is a, is a wind or a storm given the kind of untrustworthy nature of official figures coming out of China. So the Fed has, to a certain extent, painted itself into a bit of a corner. It, 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 it's going to signal something strong one way or the other. Umber Kenny, there is another dimension here, and that is the difference in the nature of the, the Federal Reserve System and the Bank of England to the European system. Uh, the Fed and the Bank of England were very, very quick into the world of quantitative easing, easing, double rounds indeed of quantitative easing, but the European Central Bank was hobbled, constrained, and only latterly embarked on, a, on an initiative of that kind. Yeah, uh, which makes the, the euro's relative strength through the crisis quite mystifying, giving... Uh, given what was going on at that time. But, um, yeah, there certainly is a different central bank culture, as we can see, over the last two years. No doubt about it. John McMahon, is there any reflections on that? Uh, just that, to repeat that point, you know, that, that the, the the Fed's mandate includes uh, the U.S. economic growth. The ECB's doesn't. So the Fed will do what it thinks is good for, the, for, for growth in the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's, great, it's like we, I kept, keep saying, it's got... Employment's uh, close to full employment. That's the number one thing they look at. They were talking about it only last week, uh, and the danger now is is a bubble. They'll have too much money in the system, and uh, spe- you know, people are making bad investments, and uh, you know just f- sowing the seeds of the next crisis. 
So the war is over, it's time to go back to normality. I don't think there's ever going to be normality again. Robert Kennedy? Well, uh, another thing we didn't really discuss is, I suppose, inflation uh, in the U.S. is uh, 0.2% or something around that notion. Well, that definitely calls for urgent uh, central bank intervention. Well, if, if, you, if, you, if you remove um, oil from that, it, it comes in around 1.8%, which is near their kind of mandated 2% price rise. So that's something to kind of consider. But there is a difficulty when you're looking at inflation that if you say that, well, the inflation is at X, but if you take away cigarettes or you take away booze or whatever, you know, inflation is really at an acceptable level. Yes. And once you start down that path, well, really, you know, it's kind of you're, you're, you're not really seriously analysing inflation at all, no? Certainly, certainly. And if you'd uh, included house prices in RCPI, I'm sure you would have had a different trajectory all along. That is true. Ownberg Kennedy and John McManus, thank you very much. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704 Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Well, the Rugby World Cup is almost upon it, and with it, high hopes for the Irish team, and indeed high hopes in other countries for all of the other teams. We're not talking the sport today, but we are talking the business of the sport. And with me here in studio is Laura Slattery, finance reporter with the Irish Times, and also Dominic Coyle, deputy business editor. Laura Slattery, what is the, what's the story around business and the Rugby World Cup at the moment? Well, the story of business and the Rugby World Cup is that each time the tournament is held, it gets bigger and is worth more to the host economy and attracts um, a higher sum of of marketing and sponsorship cash. So this one, because it's taking place in England and Wales, sort of, uh, you know, they're big rugby countries. It's in our time zone. It's going to be well followed, uh, I think, in this market as well. This is a very, very big event for TV3 because it has the rights to broadcast the games. That's right. Um, TV3, you know, I think it was about 18 months ago they won the rights to it. I've certainly been getting, you know, one year to go countdown emails from them. And they have a ticker on their screen at the moment, you know, uh, counting down the days to kick off, which is um, 8 p.m. on Friday, England versus Fiji. The coverage begins at 6 p.m. And the match is uh, preceded by an opening ceremony. And that's the first of 48 live games that they're going to be showing over the 44 days of the tournament. And they had the option, once they paid for the rights, they could have sub-licensed some of those matches to other broadcasters, but they chose not to because they really want to use this tournament as a way of drawing people to the channel who maybe never really watch TV3. This is going to bring them in. What is the likely prospect of success on that front? Um, I think, you know... I think it's it's very likely. I mean, um, a Six Nations match on RTE, which of course has the track record in rugby, that would typically get more than 600,000 viewers, which for TV3 is a massive audience. 
Um, the most watched program on TV3 in history was an edition of The X Factor from several years ago now involving an Irish contestant. And it's looking to beat that record. I think it's 800,000 something viewers, average viewers. Um, if Ireland does well in the tournament and gets to the latter stages of the tournament, then it, it is likely to, to reach that, that figure. But, Bonanza in Ballymount. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it depends on the timing of the matches as well. The first game, I believe, is against Canada. Just checking my notes here, 2.30 p.m. Saturday. That's probably, um, you know, they, you know, it's probably going to be about 300, 400,000 for that. But the other matches are on a bit later on there on Sundays. And they're hoping for that Six Nations type, type number, 600,000 plus, maybe even up to 800,000. And there after that, you know, we dare to dream was what somebody in TV3 said to me this week. You know, one of the executives, you know, keeping close eye on it. Um, and, you know, the rights were expensive for them. And it's actually a loss leader. You know, even though they've sold a heap of advertising around it, packages, tier one packages were 150,000 apiece. They've held back, you know, some late money to flog the airtime, especially, as I say, if Ireland as well, there'll be a bit more interest from brands. They're going to want, want to pay whatever they can to get their uh, 30 second spots in. Um, but, you know, it, what they really want is this kind of, kind of rising tide effect on the rest of their schedule. They need to think about the future. They need to get more viewers in for their home produced content like uh, the soap opera Red Rock and also some imports like Big Brother, Celebrity Big Brother, which have been doing you know quite well for them, but they obviously need more viewers. The X Factor is actually um, making way on Saturday nights for some of these matches. Um, uh, ITV has the rights in the UK, so they've had to uh, slightly uh, t- uh, toy with the schedule there for, for what w- the X Factor obviously would be a huge commercial uh, boost for them on Saturday nights at this time of year. But, but rugby is, uh, is officially more important. So it's not a bad old time for John Malone to be taking command. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, Liberty Global, that's John Malone's company, they uh, have bought TV3 um, via the uh, 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 local uh, subsidiary, UPC Ireland, which is soon to rebrand as Virgin Media. So, you know, this is a a big time for the broadcaster because they're hoping for more money to invest in content and they probably do, you know, need need that. They've been on, on a shoestring for many, many years now. Um, I th- you know, they have, I think this, this, this probably will do well for them. Is there evidence that they're boosting the other product they have to, uh, in light of the fact that they're expecting significantly more people to be watching the channel? Well, they certainly, they've scheduled uh, other rugby-themed programming. So there's a, there was one off documentary uh, on Ireland's Call the other night, which was actually a really lovely documentary, I have to say. It wasn't particularly well watched. It was on at 10 p.m., it's called Ireland's Call. If it, if it is re- re- repeated, and obviously it's about the origins of that anthem, uh, if it is repeated, I do recommend checking it out. Uh, it's about Phil Coulter and how he came about with that song and the recording of a new version of the song. And they also have a kind of a second captain style um, thing called The Sin Bin, which uh, go, uh, goes out on Thursday nights where you kind of have a little bit of chat, an audience that stands around and claps and laughs and uh, basically rugby banter. Dominic Coyle, uh, this, of course, is a major event uh, across the water, but uh, Ireland itself has ambitions to host this very event down the line. They do. Uh, They're one of uh, four countries that are bidding to host the tournament in 2023. Uh, That's a decision that won't be made now till the middle of 2017, probably. But a lot of the work on that is, is really getting underway now. Uh, it it has come. This tournament has come from a standing start 28 years ago to be the third largest global sporting event 
um, which is phenomenal. Um, the last time Ireland had any input into it was back in 1991. A and long th- time ago now, Dominic. It is, and we, we got basically one of the pools, but there was France and the UK were all involved. And it's really only since the New Zealand tournament that uh, before that, it, the assumption had been that Ireland was too small a country to host a tournament of this scale, this magnitude. But New Zealand, again, is a similarly sized country. It was a very successful World Cup. It's much further away in terms of uh, sponsorship and broadcasting hours and things like that if for convenience. So after that, they undertook, the Irish Union undertook a feasibility study to see whether such a tournament could be operated here. And, and the results of that study were sufficient to persuade them and the two governments, uh, North and South, that, uh, that it was an exercise worth, worth pursuing. And it's also the case that uh, I mean, the very face of uh, rugby as a game, as an enterprise, has changed utterly in the last 20 years. Oh, very much so. I mean, it, the, the, first, the first World Cup was very much an amateur affair. This is now a, a very professional tournament on the field and, as Laura was saying, off it. And at the level of the international squad and at the level of all the other teams, there is a, you know, the people are accustomed to Irish success as a matter of routine almost on the field. Irish teams are not outliers in this international scene. No, we could certainly hold our own. We might like to do slightly better. A semi-final this time round will be uh, a step forward. But uh, yes, certainly we're, we don't see ourselves as inferior anymore on the international playing field. And this, from the business perspective, means that uh, rugby has essentially entered the mass market. Critical mass has been achieved. It has very much. Uh, and for an event like this, the, they would hope that that would bring something of the scale of 800 million euro into the Irish economy if we were successful in hosting it. Something of the scale of 400,000 or more international visitors here for quite a space of time because this is a tournament that goes over almost seven weeks. And then you've got, as, as Laura was saying, the broadcast hours, the TV audience of the 2015 tournament is expected to be somewhere in the scale of 4.2 billion people watching in 200 plus countries, 20,000 hours of broadcasting. That's priceless tourism and the gathering wouldn't come close. I'm sure their, their, their eyes are watering in, uh, in, in, in TV3, the, the prospect of these kind of audiences, Laura. And they are. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with semifinals, but if Ireland gets to the quarterfinal, if we're, if we're the runner-up in Pool D, then we'll be playing a quarterfinal at Saturday at 8pm, which TV3 would like very much. Uh, if we actually win Pool D, it's at 1pm on a Sunday, which isn't quite as as, as, as appealing, for uh, perhaps. Ah, still, uh, I'd, say, I'd, I'd say people would still be willing to watch it. Oh, I think I think they will be. I think they'll probably be pretty well well watched. And it's good news as well for um, uh, the various sponsors. Land Rover is the TV3 sponsor, and they're also one of the big tournament sponsors as well. How much would um, they be in for on a, on, a, on, a, on, an is- on an initiative such as this? Well, like it's uh, um, typically the line with sponsorships, broadcast sponsorships, is that it's a six-figure sum. It's very hard to get more detail than that. Well, uh, it's, a long, Rover, it's a long way from 100,000 euro to 999. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, Land Rover would have a bigger spend overall because they're one, they're part of the tournament sponsor mm. family. And the others involved there are high Heineken, DHL, uh, Societe Generale, Emirates and MasterCard and then another sort of sponsorship tier level, uh, the official sponsors are are Coca-Cola, Toshiba, uh, Canon and Fujitsu. So that's a slightly lower tier than the so-called worldwide partners. But these are still the kind of brand names that you would associate with Soccer World Cup and that. These are kind of big global marks. They are. I mean, yeah, you see you see many of the, the big, the, the main multinationals uh, showing up, you know. Um, 
I think at the moment uh, the most visible perhaps brand campaign is from Diageo Um, and there's been a lot of comment about this actually because one of the ads they're showing here for Guinness is uh, features the story of Gareth Thomas and it it counts recounts his struggles coming out or his fear about coming out to his teamwork uh, to his team um, but it is a, a Freudian slip there because I suppose the message of the ad is teamwork uh, and it's uh, very much you know all these sort of typical things that we hear about rugby pride integrity character courage you know empathy and resi- resilience and solidarity with your with your fellow uh, player that's very much brought to the fore in this ad um, I think it's great that a uh, brand has a, a you know sort of allied aligned itself with uh, being gay uh, people being gay that was you know was a time when they never did that but on the other hand there has been a lot of comments saying they've appropriated this struggle you know they're trying to sell beer on the on the back of a ver- of a of a continuing social uh, prejudice and and some people are a little bit uh, uncomfortable about it so there's two sides to that maybe people would say that the struggle is in fact one um, maybe I don't know um I think in sport perhaps in particular it hasn't mean maybe um um, it, it, uh, uh, people, people shaking their heads here in the studio. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it has been won. I mean, obviously we're on a high here in this country because of the marriage referendum. Um, but you know, you know, you have to say there was a time when when Guinness would not have, um, you know, backed uh, Gareth Thomas and put put the, put him at the centre of of a campaign like this. So things have changed. Aer Lingus are in there as well. Yeah, right? I wanted to actually talk about Aer Lingus because I think that's a really interesting one because in in recent times their advertising has moved away from the kind of flag carrier stuff and it's uh, it's a bit more a bit more jaunty, a bit less of the old Emerald Isle. But for the rugby campaign, it's uh, all hashtag Green Spirit. You know, they, their airlines are lucky because they have their own inventory. Essentially, they can rebrand the livery on their their aircraft, which it has done. Uh, IRFU branded uh, aircraft there, an Airbus um, that they unveiled in 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 May. So it's very much along the, the other uh, quality associated with rugby over the years, and for very particular historic reasons. In fact, is patriotism um, in England and in, in Britain, rugby was associated with patriotism because of the um, the speed at which a lot of the the the, the rugby tournament uh, rugby clubs. Um, uh, uh, encourage their players to volunteer for service in, in the First World War. Uh, they were seen as being a bit um, quicker to do so than the more commercially minded football clubs, and with the legacy effect that a lot of the public schools in Britain in the in the early 1920s uh, uh, were very keen to to choose rugby rather than football as something that uh, something that their schoolboys played. So it was sort of a historical sort of angle to sort of where the the patriotism obviously involved in all sport, but but in Britain in particular, so it seems to have developed from there. Um, so yeah, Aer Lingus is is one of them, but there's there's a whole heap of other brands being involved here. Three Heineken, um, you know, expect Paddy Power to be doing a lot of activity. Um, so it's uh, it's it's all going to be monitored and analysed and uh, uh, kept the, the the account accounted for at the end of at the end of the tournament. Dominic Coyle, that's rather a lot of money sloshing around. You'd have to think that the willingness of uh, firms locally to spend money on a big event such as this, notwithstanding its profile, be tokens a certain confidence about conditions on the ground in the economy. 
Certainly, and, and that is very much the case. All the recent indications are that the economy is in, in strong recovery mode. The most recent GDP figures are looking at, at recovery of about 6% of economic growth. So, yes, com- companies over here are, are confident. They're, this is a, a time and a platform to get their message out there. A lot of them are looking to key international markets to try to grow their business further. So this is a tremendous opportunity for them. That's a tremendous opportunity for rugby fans as well. There's going to be weeks and weeks of all of this. Very much so. Uh, it's 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 once once every four years we get a jamboree and try to to knock the football off off the screens. Uh, but uh, you know the rugby fans are, are they they these tournaments love them because they come for a long time. They come with deep pockets, uh, so they they produce a strong strong returns for the organisers. Dominic Coyle and Laura Slattery, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Thank you for listening.